Good morning, Rich Point Church. So I have a crazy dog. Can anybody identify with having a crazy dog? Uh, I, I would, I was, I was trying to be nice about it. I, I could have said, I could have come in and said, I got a dumb dog. Because I, don't get me wrong, I love my dog, but he always does things that just, like, it blows my mind. A couple of months ago, I got a chance to share a story. One Valentine's Day, we actually found him on the back of a police car. And you do everything you can to raise your dog right, and then Valentine's Day ends up in the back of a police car, and you wonder, where did it all go south on us? Um, but, but I say that because my dog also, he has a very short-term memory, I think. I think this is what's going on. Because if you're a friend, you come over our house frequently, he does this. He'll greet you. He loves greeting people coming to our house. If you left and like walked out to your car to go get something, you walked back in, he would have forgotten you were just there. And he'll greet you all over again. Like, like, you, like oh, I'm glad you're here. And I'm like, they, they didn't really leave. He gets so excited. He gets so giddy and just so happy to see everybody. And I thought about that yesterday because... I got up in the morning, we had some family stuff going in the afternoon, so we got up, we're kind of spending some time around the house, and I went over to feed him, and we have like this little kind of feeding trough in our back porch area of the, of the house, and, and so I grabbed a scoop full of food to go take it to, to feed him, and he got so excited. You would have thought he never ate before, like he's jumping up and down, he's all happy, and I could literally, like if, if he could speak at all, I'm sure he's sitting there saying, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, like he was really excited, and I'm like, we, we feed you every day. Like, you would have thought this was a big deal. And so we go over, I put the food in a bowl, and he's all excited. He's jumping all over the place. And I'm just, like, literally laughing at my dog. Like, I'm like, why are you so goofy like this? We're just feeding you, and you're all excited. And then as I walked away, and I was laughing, I thought, you know, if everybody in the world got as excited as, as my dog got when he got fed, the world would be a much happier place. Like, he's just getting his food, which isn't all that great. It's dog food. And he's excited, and he's jumping up and down, and he's so happy. And it seems like in life, like we're just kind of getting through and, and, and God's all around us. And he's doing some really, really cool things. And we don't even realize it. We don't appreciate it. Well, this whole series on pursuing happiness is, is built upon this idea that, that God, first of all, and I want us to get this. And if I have to say this each week, I will. God first wants us to have joy. We need to emphasize that. Joy is, we talked about last week, the difference between joy and happiness. And we will take time to get all those definitions back out and unpack those but joy is abiding, it stays with us, it's eternal. And ultimately, I realize that the joy that we can have in our life today is based entirely upon what Jesus did for us. And really, my joy is derived from the idea that I understand that forever, for eternity, no matter what happens, I can have a relationship with him because of what he did for me. And that brings me joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances, I can have joy. And that's great, and I think the church has done a great job trumpeting the cause of joy, and they get really excited about that, really passionate about that. Sometimes at the expense of happiness, and sometimes they make happiness sound like it's something that's not good. Like, we want you to have joy, but don't have happiness. Like, wait a minute. Isn't it possible you can have both? And in fact, what we look at in the Scripture and in the Beatitudes is Jesus teaching, happy are the, and he gives a condition, then he gives a result of that condition. And this whole series is built on that idea that God wants us to have joy, but he also wants us to have happiness. And this teaching of Jesus is built upon that idea He's teaching us how to have happiness today, right now. It might not be as abiding as joy, but it may be not, it might not be the definition also we've come to understand and appreciate for what happiness is. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle with happiness is sometimes because we have a warped theology. We have a warped understanding of who God is. And I think sometimes that's because people fall into, they don't mean to fall in these two categories, but they fall into two categories. And sometimes churches fall in these two categories. And these are polar extremes, and they, they might be a little bit exaggerated. But, but in one corner, you have people who, who teach, sometimes churches teach us, or people just have this belief inside of them that God is a vengeful, graceless God. 
And he sits on, on, his, on his throne, and he bangs the gavel, and he looks at all of us, and he says, you've all made mistakes, and you're all condemned, and that's it. And, and they take themselves really seriously, and, and you go to churches that are like that, sometimes these are churches that do some goofy things, holding up signs and all that, but, but sometimes not to that extreme. Sometimes just you go to church, and it's very serious, and it's very formal, and if it looks like you're enjoying church at all, they say, wait a minute, are you laughing at church? Like, you can't do that. And, and, and if you grew up in a church like this, I didn't grow up to a church quite that extreme, but it was pretty serious. And sometimes we're supposed to take our relationship with God seriously. I'm convinced sometimes we take ourselves way too seriously. And you grow up and you go to church, and, and maybe if, if you start to look like you're enjoying yourself at all, people start to look at you funny. And you start to laugh at church, and like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to laugh at church. This is a serious deal. You're not supposed to enjoy this. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. If we're following Christ and we're not enjoying it, then we're doing something wrong. And so when we gather together, when we gather together as a church, there should be emotion. We should be excited about that. There's times that that brings laughter. And we try to build that into the message and have some times we can laugh and enjoy ourselves. There's also time for it to be serious. This Milton approach to Christianity doesn't take into account the way Jesus conducted ministry. Jesus was very personal. He related to where people were at. I'm sure a lot of that was met with laughter and enjoyment, and the people that were following him enjoyed. Now, he was serious. There was times he, he was really serious with, with downloading truth in their life. But it was also supposed to be an enjoyable thing. On the flip side of that is this perspective some people have. If some people view God as kind of as militant or authoritative, no grace at all in, in your life, on the other side are people who just all they want to talk about is, is grace and love. And they look at God almost as if he's a cosmic Santa Claus and he's just sitting there waiting and just do whatever you want. And he's just going to forgive you and he's going to give you whatever you want. Uh, no conditions, whatever you want, it's all yours. And that sounds really good and it's warm and fuzzy and it makes us feel good about ourselves. But the problem is people who have this view sometimes look at God and say, if we just ask of God, God's going to give it to us unconditionally. Whatever we want, God's just sitting there waiting for us uh, to ask these things from him. And then I encounter the Apostle Paul who's doing a pretty good job of following Jesus. And he prays three times for something to happen and God doesn't answer the prayer exactly like he wants it to be because there's a purpose for that thing to be in his life. When we do this, we have this view of God kind of as this cosmic Santa Claus giving us whatever he wants, whatever we want. We reduce God's sovereignty, the idea of God being in control. We reduce God's sovereignty to the whim of, of his followers, of his people. And God's much bigger, God's much more powerful than that. Maybe if you're a dad right now, you can identify with that. Like when we're young, when we're growing up, we, we kind of like, hey, my parents don't always know what, what I need, what I want, and, and they're old, they're clueless, they don't know what's happening. But as we grow older, we start to mature, we realize, man, I want, as a dad, I want my kids to be happy. I want my kids to, to enjoy life. But there's sometimes the things that they want are not what's best for them. And so part of my responsibility as a dad is to discern in their life, to say, listen, I want to shower you with grace and with love. I want you to know these things, but also I want to be able to teach you there's a difference between right and wrong. That God's not sitting there. God's sovereign. God's in control. He's way more powerful than I could ever be. He's way more wise than I could ever be as a dad. But he knows what's best for his children, so he's not like he's just sitting there saying, hey, do whatever you want. Instead, he's saying, I have a purpose. My desire for you, what we're looking at in Scripture that we've been looking at, his desire for us as his followers, if, we're, if today we call ourselves those people who are following Christ, his desire for us is for us to be able to enjoy life. But it doesn't necessarily mean doing things the way that we want to do them. In fact, last week we, we pulled out the scripture, and, and we don't have time to really dig deep into this this morning. If, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to, to go back and check out the podcast. But I want to share this verse real quick to kind of lay the foundation for where we're going. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, 
we, we talked about last week, a lot of times people, they get this, they, this time of need in someone's life and they're trying to give some good advice. And the best advice they can come up with is, well, follow your heart. And we said, well, that sounds really good in the moment. But then we're reading Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says, our heart can be deceitful above all things. It's desperately, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we, a lot of times we associate our heart with our happiness and we say, if, if we're just following our heart, that's going to bring happiness to our life. And it doesn't always work that way. And the reason it doesn't work that way is sometimes we're pursuing things that bring temporary pleasure and it brings instant gratification. And if I were to ask you right now, if, if whatever it is you're longing for in your life, and it could be a, a career pursuit, it could be a relationship that you're, that you're desiring to have in your life, it could be some specific object that's out there that you say, if I just had that thing, it would bring satisfaction. I so that, that sounds good, and it seems like that might work out, and sometimes God wants to have those things. But if our happiness is, is surrounded by those things, and if our happiness is found in those things, then it's a dangerous place to be. Like, if our happiness is tied into any of those things, it's really dangerous. And so we have on one side this verse that says, our heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. And, and sometimes I want things that aren't good for me. As a parent, I realize that my kids, sometimes they want things that might not be the best for them. And so it's my responsibility to try to discern that as best I can. The problem with that is I'm not, I'm not all-knowing. I don't always know what's best. I think I know what's best, and I try to have the best advice for my kids, but I'm not God. God looks down on us and says, I know what's best for you as my children. Like, I know what's actually going to bring joy and happiness into your life. And in fact, Jesus' teaching centralizes on that idea. So on one side, we have this idea that our heart is deceitful, but also we have some, some verses to kind of bounce that idea out. That's what we want to talk about a little bit today. There's this verse in the Psalms where he's writing, and sometimes people take this. In fact, I heard someone take this approach this week. And they're talking about how God wants to give us a desire for our hearts, which seems to fly in the face of the Jeremiah passage. But it's actually true that the Bible says in a couple of different places, God wants to give us a desire of our hearts. He wants us to be able to enjoy this. But the person I saw that was writing about this says, there's no qualification. When I read scripture, God wants us to, as his children, to have the desire for hearts. And they actually said, there's no qualifiers at all when God says that. I said, okay, well, let's, let's read this passage real quick in, in Psalms. Psalms 37, 4, it says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desire of your heart. Like, that sounds great. I love that second part of that verse. God's going to give me the desire of my heart, and that means if I'm chasing after something, if I really, really want it, and if that's my desire, then God's going to give that to me, right? Well, no, there's a huge qualifier before we ever get to that point. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he's going to give you the desire of your heart. She writes and she said, well, God's not qualifying it. God wants to give us a desire of our hearts. And I'm like, wait a minute. God does. God desires for us to be able to enjoy life. But he's also absolutely in control. And as he's in control, he says, I know what's best for my children. And sometimes the things that we pursue are not necessarily what's best. And sometimes we ask for things saying, God, would you just give me this? If I just had this, everything would be okay. And God says, wait, first delight yourself in me. First, find your delight in me. I know you want to know all that other stuff, but delight yourself in me. And once you find that resting spot, once you find that joy in me, then I'm going to start to give you the desire of your heart because your desire is going to be so in tune with where I'm at that at that point it's going to be what's best for you. Similarly, over in the book of James, it says this. He's speaking specifically about our prayer and the things that we're asking for. And so it says, you desire and, and, and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
And then he says this, if we're asking things of God and we're not getting the, or if we're not getting the things that we want, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Number one, if, if we're not getting what we want out of life, first thing is that we, we have this request that we have, but we're not asking God for it. Or more than likely, the next verse, verse three says, you ask and do not receive. So if you are asking and you're not receiving, it's because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't find myself necessarily always in that first category. Like a lot of times if I see something and I think, man, this could be good, this could be right for me, then I'm gonna go and say, God, I'm gonna ask you if I can get this, if this works out. So a lot of times I'm not necessarily in the category of not asking God for things, so sometimes that happens. But more than likely I'm asking God for the thing, but I'm asking God for what's wrong. See, I think if I just get this, it's gonna bring satisfaction to my life. If I just get this, it's gonna bring happiness to my life. And God says, wait a minute, you're asking for the wrong thing because the thing that you're pursuing right now, it's gratification, it's not happiness. It's temporary. And you're chasing after your passions. You've asked wrongly because you're chasing after your passions. God wants us pursuing happiness, not necessarily pursuing gratification, but pursuing happiness. That means sometimes he's gonna give us things that we want. And, and so uh, where I started to go with this, when I started to have this discussion myself, trying to work through the scripture, I say, okay, God, if, if you want me to kind of chase happiness but not gratification and trying to figure out what's the difference there, then how do I know? And I try to think through friends in my life that are going through st- specific situations, praying, God, saying, reveal this to me, and if that's something they should do or something they should not do, and I said, man, what's the best I could give generically? Realizing each one of these would have to be a case-by-case basis. But what's the best advice I could give generically to people who are trying to say, is this gratification or is this happiness? Is this something I should pursue or is it something I should not pursue? First of all, I said, chase God. If you're chasing God right now, if you're doing the things that he wants you to do, the rest of those things are going to start to work themselves out. They're going to start to be revealed to you. But then if you're sitting there making this crucial decision right now, trying to figure out if this is good, if this is not what's good, what's a good general piece of advice to give? If you're making one of those decisions right now, the best advice I could give, and you'd have to look at each of these on a case-by-case basis, but I've got to preface it with that. When you're making that decision, think about right now, whatever it is you th- that you think is going to bring satisfaction. Later on down the road, maybe five years down the road, is it going to continue to bring you the same level of satisfaction? If not, there's a chance that what you're chasing is going to just bring a short-term instant gratification, but in the end could actually lead to the demise of our happiness. Well, Jesus begins this teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he actually begins his teaching by, by going up in the mountain, and he gets away from the crowd, and he spends some time alone with the Father. And then he comes back down from the mountain, and he starts to gather with, with the people that were following him. He spent time away from them, and he comes back down. And, and the thing I love about this was last week I mentioned that uh, the mountain where they believe he actually had that teaching, they call it now the Mount of the Beatitudes, because what we're looking at in this series is the Beatitudes. It's called the Mount of Beatitudes. And, and initially, a lot of times when we read it, we think Jesus is coming down from the mountain, the people are gathered, and he teaches from the mountain down. But everyone, experts now look at it and say, it's, it's a greater likelihood that Jesus went down below where the people were, and they're kind of sitting up the mountain or standing up the mountain to listen to him. So it would create an amphitheater effect for hundreds or thousands of people to be able to hear this famous sermon. And so I want you to see, this is a picture from the Mountain of Beatitudes, where if the people were actually gathering there, listening to Jesus in his day, this is probably what they would have seen right here. And it's a picture of the backdrop. You see the the sea there, you see the mountains in the background. And so the people probably would have been sitting with their back towards the mountain, looking down at Jesus, but this is the backdrop. As Jesus begins this teaching, 
And he begins the teaching that's called the Sermon on the Mount with specifically what we call the Beatitudes. The, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. And each of the Beatitudes begins with a teaching that there's a condition, and after the condition comes a result. And he says, blessed are the, and he goes through a list of things, for there, da, 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 and, and he gives a condition and the result. Last week we talked about uh, blessed are those who, who are broken, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And, and we talked about the, the big idea, and before we went, went any further, we said, we got to get this. That once we realize we are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus, once we realize that, that everything that we do is not based upon the strength that we have, especially as guys realize, man, we're broken, we're fallen, we're sinful creatures, then once I realize that my brokenness before him, that I start to understand what it means to have his kingdom, that I start to understand, man, his purpose becomes my pur- purpose because I can't do this myself. And I said, man, this is our foundation, and this is everything that the series is going to build upon. And we're going to go look at a bunch of Beatitudes that are not, not necessarily related to this, but we have to have that foundation. But the more I dug into this second Beatitude that we're about to look into, the more I dug into this, I realized these two things, these two topics are not unrelated at all. But the second one we're going to look at today does nothing but amplify the first. If we're broken before God, that's powerful. But what we're going to look at today amplifies that to another degree. So if you have your Bibles, open up the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to look at the, the next beatitude. And as, as we look at that, uh, last week we talked about pursuing happiness is living eternally now. We have to have the joy of God in our life. We have to realize our joy is derived completely from him. And once we have that, he says this. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I, when I read that, the first thing, I want to jump right away to the response. And I love that part that even though I mourn, God is my comforter. Like, I love that side of it. I love the, the fact that at the end of this message, we can talk about the idea of being comforted. Because if you're going through a difficult time right now, it's not saying that, that this, the, the situation you're in right now, the condition you're in, you're in right now, is a good place to be. We don't like to be in a, in a position of mourning. We don't like to be in that situation. But the good news at the end is that there's going to be comfort in that time of mourning that's powerful. But before we get there, we have to look at the first part of this verse. And it says, blessed or happy are those who mourn. So if I just take that, forget the latter part of the verse for a second. If I just take a look at that, and I say, okay, Jesus is teaching this, and this is really what he's teaching. He's saying, happy are those who mourn. If the word mourn, if the word mourn means unhappy, then Jesus is literally teaching here, happy are those who are unhappy. And I say, that doesn't make sense. That boggles my mind. How could Jesus, is he just trying to say something that's clever here? How does that work? The more I studied that, the more I started to see, man, Jesus had this, this wisdom that, that superseded our surface level understanding of what it means to actually have relationships, to have love, to have people we care about. And so he says, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Literally, the word mourn there could have been used about two different scenarios in people's lives. I think most of the time when you and I hear the word mourn, we tend to think if, if we're mourning, we're mourning over the loss of a loved one. We're mourning over, man, this person was here and they're gone, and, and and, and we say, well, how could that be? How could we communicate that? I'll say this before I get into this, that it's, it's not probable that's exactly what Jesus was teaching here. It's, it's possible. It's more than likely the second one we'll get to in just a second is where Jesus was. But even if he's talking about happy are those who mourn, meaning we're, lo- we're mourning over the loss of a loved one, at first that seems really difficult. It's not saying that right there in the midst of, of that season of mourning, because we, do, we all go through these seasons of mourning. It's not saying right in the midst of that season of mourning that there's happiness. But he's saying the condition of who you are because of the way that you care about people, 
even though you go through difficult times, the very idea that you would mourn over the loss of a loved one shows that God's given you the ability to relate to people in such a way that when you lose them, it leads to mourning. As you've walked with people through those difficult times, and they have difficult times, and some of you might be experiencing those right now, it's hard, it's a challenge, and it's, it's a season that we go through. But if I could look at anybody going through a difficult time, and I could say, listen, I could take away all the mourning that you're experiencing right now. I could take away all the heartache and all the pain. But in order to do that, I would have to take away the relationship that you had in the past. Hopefully we'd say, no, it's, it's not worth it. See, there is the pain that comes with it, but the pain shows how much we cared about the person in life. And a person who doesn't grieve over a person in death, I have to question how much they cared about them in life. But more than likely, Jesus here is teaching, not just mourning about a person who's lost their, their life, but, and Jesus understood that. In fact, there's t- a couple of times in Scripture where Jesus cries. In one of those instances, he cries over the death of, of his friend Lazarus, and there's more to it than that, but generally speaking, he's crying at that scene. But it's more likely Jesus is teaching here about the mourning over the loss of innocence when, he starts to see, when we start to see people that we care about make poor decisions. Jesus also understood what this was like. As he looks over the city of Jerusalem, he looks over his people, he sees them in unbelief, he sees them falling far away from God, and Jesus weeps over the city. He understood what it's like to look out on people that, that he's passionate about, people that he loved, and I think most of us can identify with that. Most of us have people that we care about in a deep-seated way, and we care about that person, we love that person, and we start to see them make mistakes. And because of the love, because of the passion we have for them, we see those mistakes, and we say, man, it grieves my heart to see them hurting in the way they're hurting. It grieves my heart to see how much pain that they have in making decisions they make, and I know the decisions they're making is leading towards uh, really a poor outcome in their life. It, it might mean it leading to, uh, to brokenness or, or, or leading to really, really, really bad mistakes or, or leading to divorce or, or, or leading to bankruptcy or leading to these big moments. And we look at our friends, we look at our family, we care about them in a great way and it grieves our heart to see them make those mistakes. And Jesus understood that. But I can't help but wonder as we talk about this idea of, of blessed are those who mourn or happy are those who mourn. If I look out and I look out at people that I, that I love and, and friends that I have, and I say, man, I know they're making those mistakes. I know that hurts my heart. But I can't, as I do that, I can't be consistent in my life. If I look out at their mistakes and I not allow the very same idea to illuminate my own heart. I say, man, God, I know they're making mistakes and it's easy for me to point my finger at somebody else. But when I point my finger at someone else, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't allow that same illumination to hit my heart and realize the brokenness of the situation that I'm in. Happy are those who mourn. When I look out at the sins of others, it's hard for me not to see my own fallenness. And I, I wonder, God, I, I look out and I'm broken and I see them. I see family members. I see friends that I care about and it breaks my heart to see that. But I can't help but wonder if, if the things that I do, God, if they don't break your heart just as much. See, it's easy for me to stand back and point my finger at other people. A lot of times my brokenness is the very same thing to God's heart. And the closer we become in our walk with God, the more we realize that our sin grieves his heart. 
Now, there's a big difference. I think it's where we start to amplify this a little bit. See, last week we talked about the brokenness that we realize. And it is one thing for me to realize my brokenness. It's one thing for me to realize, man, God, without you, I am, I am bankrupt. That everything I do is because of Jesus. Every, every relationship I have, every good thing comes down for, from you, God. Everything I have is your grace, your mercy. I understand I'm bankrupt. I'm broken without you. It's one thing for me to realize my bankruptcy. It's another thing entirely for me to mourn the, the condition that I'm in. It's one thing for me to be sorry. It's another thing for me to mourn. See if this works for us. Imagine for a second, we have, we have a relationship. It could be friends. It could be maybe a parent that we care about. And we have a relationship, and we know we did something wrong to hurt that relationship. And, and we think, okay, it was, it was probably a bad deal. It was probably a big deal. Everybody knew that we made the mistake. And so because everyone knows that, that I made a mistake, the only thing that I can do in this situation is I can go and apologize and try to fix the error that I made. Now, the truth is, a lot of us find ourselves in that situation where we know we made a mistake, we know that the mistake we made, it's hurt the relationship that we have, and so because of that, we know the right option for us to do, because it's just the kind of the Christian thing to do, is I'm going to go and I'm going to apologize for the error that I made. And so I go to the person that I offended, I go to the person that I hurt, and, and, I, and I apologize for what I did. Now, it's not a heartfelt apology, it's, it's not, there's, there's, there's no brokenness on my part. Uh, it just is, I know I was wrong, and so because I know I'm wrong, I'm going to go and I'm going to apologize for the mistake that I made. And that person, maybe they're a person who's trying to follow after God, and, and they say, okay, you apologize, and I know the right thing for me to do, because I'm trying to follow God, is to forgive you, so I'm going to go ahead and forgive you. The problem with that, I think, if, if we just realize a real-life situation maybe we've been in, is that there's no brokenness. There's, 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 there, as we talk about, the, you know, blessed are the people, the people that, are, that are broken, blessed is that, that brokenness that comes uh, to mourning. If there's no mourning, if there's no change in, in our life, it's really not a heartfelt apology. In fact, when I found, found myself in that same situation where I know I did something wrong and I know the right thing for me to do was apologize, sometimes if I'm honest, what I'm really apologizing for, what I'm really sorry for is the fact that I got caught. And so I go and I apologize and I say, man, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And they say, oh yeah, of course I forgive you. And we leave, and the relationship has never really fully been restored. We went through the motions, but there's no sorrow, there's no mourning. And the Bible speaks about that there is a sorrow, there's a brokenness, there's a mourning that leads to repentance. And repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry, it's, it's leading to life change. And there's a brokenness that comes with that. Blessed are those who mourn. If I look at that same scenario, Maybe I've done something to offend a friend, and we were close friends. We were really, really tight. And I did something to offend that friend. I did something to hurt that friend. And I know that I made a mistake. And everybody else knows that I made a mistake. And they look at me, and, and, I, and I realize that, I, man, I fragmented this relationship. I, I know that it was my fault. But instead of this surface-level understanding of what it means to apologize, I come now absolutely broken. I come now absolutely crushed, mourning the mistake that I made. And I come, and maybe I go down on, on my knees saying, listen, I don't deserve this friendship any longer. But I'm coming just broken before you, saying that I am sorry for what I did. There's a mourning that leads to a life change. That person on the other side looks at me. Maybe I'm on my knees groveling at the fact that I made this mistake, and he picks me up, and he looks me square in the eye and says, hey, I completely forgive you. The relationship's restored. What I've seen, and there are few and far between where we actually see that level of brokenness when we make mistakes. 
and that level of, of humility and coming and saying, I'm sorry for the thing that I did. But the moments I see people actually able to go through that type of mourning, that type of, of change that comes about, a relationship that was strong prior to the offense becomes even stronger after the offense. And so this idea of blessed are they that, that mourn is, 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 as we look at these personal relationships we have, we look at also the relationship we have with God. Happy are those who mourn. I don't like the fact that what I do can, can, can hurt God. I don't, I don't like, but the closer I become to God, the more I realize my sin grieves his heart. And as it grieves his heart, the more I follow God, the more I start to understand, man, that sin does grieve him. It does hurt him. And I come saying, God, I want to be broken. Not, not that I like the season I'm going through. This is a really difficult season when we go through that. But God, I'm so happy that, that, that I'm in tune with where you are. That God, this brokenness has led to a repentance in my life. This brokenness has led to a change in my life. And it has allowed me to have healthy relationships around me. It's allowed me to start to build those relationships up because I realize every relationship that we have now is ultimately derived from the relationship we have with God. And the more I love God, the more I start to have the chance and the ability to love the people around me. And that's what we're striving for. That's what we want. And we have the brokenness. God picks us up and he looks us in the eye. He says, JJ, I know you made a mistake, but I forgive you. The relationship's been restored. Can we go back to the verse for just one second? Because it says this, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is no comfort without the grief that's involved before the comfort. But once we realize the grief, once we realize our brokenness, we look out for the hand and the heart of God to provide that comfort. And that's true whatever situation we're in. We go through that season, it's difficult, and sometimes it's because of our offense, it's because of the mistakes that we made. We've grieved the heart of God. And God says, that doesn't matter any longer. You're broken, you're fallen, but you realize that. And because of what I did in sending my son to die for you, I'm restoring this relationship. And he's given us the ability to have that relationship, not based on our own ability, but based on what Jesus did in dying in our place, taking away our sin and redeeming us. And once I have that, I no longer follow God because I have to. Because it's really, really hard to, to, to find happiness in things that we have to do. If my happiness is derived from, from a God who's a, a vindictive God who's looking to judge us, and I follow him because I have to, there's not a lot of joy there. If I follow a God who's a very weak God, just go do whatever you want, you're going to find happiness in your own stuff. I also, it's hard for me to find happiness in this. But if I follow a God who's full of grace and love, I follow a God who's right here and right now desiring to have a relationship with us, a very personal relationship. I realize, man, my sin does grieve him and offends him. But he also sets me up in right standing. He shows grace and he shows mercy. Because of that, I now follow him in freedom, saying, God, I'm going to make mistakes, and I know I'm going to screw this up every once in a while. But God, it is my desire to find happiness in the relationship that you have with me. And God, everything Jesus did paved way for this relationship. It's not based upon me, but now that I have the relationship, you've given me the freedom to serve you, to love you, to build up your kingdom. And God, when I go through those difficult times, as we're all going to go through, we go through those difficult times and we're hurting, we're broken, and sometimes stuff that's way beyond our control, and God says, listen, because of the condition that you've been in, because you, happier are those who, who are mourning, because of that condition, the result of that is now you can be comforted. Without grief, there's not really comfort, but with grief, we can start to find that comfort. We can start to find that hope. For some of us right now, you're experiencing that grief in a real way. 
The morning is that first morning, the, the loss of someone we care about, or, or maybe a, a fragment of relationship that you think is broken that's not beyond repair. First, we have to illumine the light on our own hearts. Say, God, where am I at? Where am I at first in my relationship with you? Where am I at in the relationship I have around me? And God, what can I ultimately do? Once I realize the joy of God in my life, what can I do to repair those things around me? It seems so foreign, but there's actually so much truth ingrained in that. Happy are those who mourn. For because of God, they're going to be comforted. Let's pray.